Beyond the Box Score podcast. In this episode, I interview Coach Ashley Howard. He's the former head coach of LaSalle. Coach, how's it going? Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. Coach, you want to give yourself a brief introduction to our listeners? So, uh, Ashley Howard, um, lifetime Philadelphia basketball guy, um, started my uh, coaching career at LaSalle University as an assistant, um, was an assistant at Drexel University under Coach Bruiser Flint, um, worked at Xavier for a year, and uh, was an assistant coach with Coach Jay Wright at Villanova um, for five years, from 2013 to 2018, and most recently, I was the head coach at uh, LaSalle University, um, uh, right here in Philadelphia. Awesome. Talk about growing up right outside of Philly. So, I mean, I grew up in a basketball, basketball family. My dad was a big time player, um, in the city of Philadelphia, played for coach Lefty Giselle at Maryland, um, had a, had a, you know, a career in the NBA and, you know, retired. And, you know, my dad spent a lot of time in the community, um, both in Philly and the surrounding areas, just mentoring um, players and, and just being like a, a all-around community um, contributor. So, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, with, you know, in, in, in that type of space, right? My, my uncle was a high school coach, AAU coach. My grandfather was a community contributor as well with the, who was involved with the Sunny Hill League. Um, that was, you know, like the staple of Philadelphia basketball from the 1960s all the way through the 2000s. Um, so I grew up in that in that type of environment. Um, so, um, you know, I was a player. Um, you know, I, I grew up around, you know, watching some of the greatest players that come out of the Philadelphia area, playing with some of the great players that that that, that came up in this area during the 90s and the 2000s. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to earn a scholarship to Drexel. Um, so, you know, my roots stayed, um, you know, you know, tight here in Philadelphia because I was a local guy that grew up here in the city that had a lot of relationships and connections here in the city of Philadelphia, went to college here. And I think that that's helped really, you know, transcend my career, um, you know, as a, as a college coach, uh, primarily, um, at, at Philadelphia based, um, institutions. You were a stud player in your own right at Bonner High School. Who are some of the players in that league? And did you ever get to play up against Kobe over at Lower Marion? So, you know, I I grew up like around Kobe. Um, our families were tight. Um, so, you know, I had the opportunity, you know, at an early age to be around them, working out with them. You know, we played against each other, with each other in the Sunny Hill League. Um, uh, so I was around Cole, but, um, and, and I'm gonna just tell you, like, he was, he was, you know, the hardest working guy, the, the most talented guy that I've been around, even, you know, from, you know, early, you know, recollections of, of him as a, as an early teen. Um, but, you know, guys that, that I, I competed against, you know, during my time in Philly, you know, it, it was so many great, great players, man, from Russell Butler to Eddie Griffin, you know, Lynn Greer, Ronald Murray, Marvin O'Connor, um, Jameer Nelson, um, 
I mean, there, there was there was so much talent um, in our area during that time. Martin Inglesby, who's the head coach at the University of Delaware. Um, you know, Donnie Carr, who's a um, great player at LaSalle, was on my coaching staff at LaSalle. Um, so, you know, I was I was very fortunate to to um, to play, you know, with and against some really, really um, talented players. Um, John Cox, who uh, is an Olympian, Kobe Bryant's uh, first cousin, who, um, you know, who's now on the on the coaching staff at LaSalle. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, talented guys that that all make up the fabric of, of Philadelphia basketball. Good stuff. What was your recruitment like? And, and besides the location, what made Drexel the right school for you? Oh, my recruitment, it wasn't, you know, I, I wouldn't say that my recruitment was, uh, was, was like a, like a real heavy recruitment. Um, you know, I had, you know, I had a reputation early um, just because, you know, obviously, you know, I had been around at an early age and, and, you know, I, I think I was probably more developed as a, as a young player. You know, I, I was, you know, 5'11", in eighth grade, and I didn't grow anymore. So I think people, when they saw me young, thought they're like, yo, this dude has a chance to develop into a great player, and I ain't grow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I went from being like a, a guy that was like, like, a, like a highly – um like ranked player to a guy that was a mid-major um and I can really identify with that even more now that I'm a coach right so um you know I had a lot of mid-major schools on me um you know uh Northeastern um uh University of Central Florida James Madison St. Peter's Ryder um um, Delaware, Hofstra, and Drexel. And, you know, at the time, like staying at home and playing in Philadelphia was, was a, was a thing, you know, and, you know, the big five was thriving. Drexel was just coming off of, um, having a nice run with coach Bill Herrian, with Malik Rose and Jay Myers and, and those guys that, that, that contributed to, to Drexel's success in the mid nineties. So for me, it was, you know, like stay home, get a good education at Drexel. Drexel offered the co-op program where you can go to school for, for two terms and then, you know, work a paid internship for, for a couple of, for a couple of months. So that was something that was really attractive to me uh, when I was making my decision. And then I had a couple of my friends that were, that were going to Drexel, uh, Henry Fairfax, who is the godfather of my children and Tim Whitworth, uh, we were all AAU teammates and we came in with a guy um, who, who during our time probably developed into, you know, one of the most um, uh, prolific defensive forces in you know, not only Drexel university history, but in the history of the colonial athletic association, that was Robert battle um, who came in with us and Rob was two time defensive player of the year in the CAA and, and like went on to have like an unbelievable career. So like, these were guys that were all Philly guys um, that we had grew up around and we figured that we would go to Drexel and, and, and light the world on fire. Right. Just like, just like all, you know, 18 year olds think um, when they're, when they're picking their college. 
played for Steve Seymour before a heart condition caused you to stop playing basketball. Yep. How tough how tough was that for you to process and looking back on it, what type of toll did that take on you mentally? You know what? It was one of those things where it was it was a shock because you know, I didn't feel like there was anything necessarily wrong with me. Um and you know, it would have been probably easier to process had like I had like a significant like situation where I'm like, yo, all right, this is really bad. Like I I don't need to, you know, put my life in jeopardy, right? So like I had a, a situation when I was working out with the coaching staff and I had you know, I and I was lightheaded. I didn't pass out. Um I was just a little dizzy and you know, I I took my physical and I checked off that I had experienced dizziness during exercise on a physical, which prompted our trainers to, to have me see a cardiologist. And, and, and at that time, like they, they diagnosed me with hypotropic cardiomyopathy and, you know, uh, consequently I went through a series of tests and, and I wasn't cleared to play, but, um, you know, like it, it was hard to process because in my mind, I was going into my junior year. I was ready to make a significant jump as a player. Coach Bruiser Flynn had just gotten a job. I was really excited to play for him. Um, Brew was a guy that, that I've known growing up in Philly. His father was one of my mentors. And, you know, he was coming from being the head coach at UMass, which was a big-time program at the time. And I was excited to play for him and to get an opportunity to, to you know, you know, show – what what I was able to do I felt like I was I was in the best shape of my life at the time I really invested a lot of time in working on my game so I felt like my game was at a point where I was ready to 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 be like a real significant contributor and I didn't get that opportunity and I honestly think that it's still something um inside of me to this day that still kind of fuels fire as a coach, just not being able to finish my college career. I tell my players all the time, like, yo, man, like I, I got two more years of eligibility left. You know what I mean? And I'm waking up that way. I'm coming that way. I'm bringing that type of energy, that type of work ethic, because I understood how precious life is and that you can't take things for granted. You may think you have all the time in the world to accomplish certain things, and then life happens, and then now – you know, you're forced to, to pivot. And that's what happened to me at, at that age, um, 20 years old, when I was told I'd never be able to play ball again. Um, but being able to make the transition into coaching, it helped because it was almost like a transfer of energy from me focusing on myself to focusing on my teammates and how I could help them. And, you know, they're my brothers. Like a lot of those guys that, that were on that initial team, they, they, they've been – like brothers to me for life. And even though I was going through a challenging circumstance, I didn't want my energy to drain everybody else. I wanted to be a fountain and, you know, um, and, 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 and give off positive vibes to those guys um, so that, you know what, the team could, could, could still be successful. And I think based on the attitude that I took in that situation, Coach Flint, saw something in me that that suggested that that I could be a, a coach and he really mentored me and groomed me and 
and and and taught me all the things that I needed to know in, in order to make that transition um, into coaching. You mentioned Coach Flint took over at Drexel, had guys like Jeff Arnold, Chuck Martin, Mike Connors on staff. What did you learn from those guys as you transitioned from player to student assistant coach? I mean, I, those, those guys were un, unbelievable mentors for me to learn from uh, because they were so polished and professional and confident. And, you know, they were really good on the floor. They really taught the game well. And they were still in good shape and they could get out there and play and demonstrate. And that was something that we didn't necessarily have prior to them coming. Um, so just the whole player development, you know, element, right? Um, like I, I learned that from, from, from Jeff and Chuck, right? Just how to get on the floor, teach the game, teach the details of the game. Like those guys taught me that. And if you look at the places that, they, that they've been, you know, like Jeff Arnold, you know, like he's developed guys like Langston Galloway and DeAndre Bembry and Charlie Brown, guys at St. Joe's that, that went on to, to be professionals. Um, Chuck Martin has had stints in Indiana and, and Memphis where he works with pros. So I had opportunity to learn from those guys um, just how to be a detailed teacher of, um, you know, individual skill development that, that translated to how the system was, uh, was, was in place, right? So not only was it about developing the player's individual talent, but putting them in a position where they were learning all of the different nuances of the system so that they could be effective. Uh, and then, you know, at the time, uh, Mike Connors, he was the only guy that did scouts, right? So, you know, you know, I would just watch how detailed Mikey C was with every game, knowing the personnel, knowing the plays that teams are going to run, <laughs> ATOs, starting the game. Like Mike was probably, you know, one of the, the most detailed guys that I've been around in regards to just knowing your opponent, having them broken down and preparing the team for every game. So, you know, being around those guys at that stage of my career, um, when I was just sort of kind of young and impressionable and learning and, and, and trying to be a sponge, it was, it was, it was really valuable for me. Awesome. Bashir Mason played at Drexel while you were a student assistant. What do you remember about him as a player? And did you ever think he'd become a division one head coach? My guy, that's my guy, man. I, I love Bosch, man. And, and not only, you know, and people don't know this, but Bosch and I were, were roommates on the road. So his freshman year, Bosch and I, we, we were roommates and, and um, we spent a lot of time just talking and talking about the game, um, talking about, you know, the point guard position. And, and, um, and he was a natural man. Like he was a leader. He was a floor general um, from the start, from day one. Uh, we had a, a older team, guys that, had been in the program and then Bosch came in as a freshman and we really just sort of kind of needed him to run the show. And he did that. But the thing that Bosch really did, um, and he was the defensive player of the year in the conference as a freshman, man, he was, he was one of the most tenacious on the ball defenders I ever saw. And, um, you know, there were certain games where Bosch and I had a little connection where, 
you know, I look at him and I turn the knob and, and he look at me, shake his head. I was like, yo, man, it's time to turn up the pressure. And and Bosch would, you know, he would he would he would harass dudes where they wouldn't even want to bring the ball up the floor, man. They just they just get rid of it. And um and and there was no doubt uh in my mind that Bosch had the making of a coach, right? Um, just based on the conversations that we were having and and how he looked at the game and and really the fact that he was a leader um and he commanded the respect of everybody uh that that you know you saw at an early age so it's no surprise to me that you know not only was he a head coach early but like he's been unbelievably successful and um and you know like he's just getting started man the sky's the limit for Bosch and um and you know it's cool to reflect on those days man in, in the hotel on the road um, during our Drexel days because, you know, a lot of it all makes sense now that, that we're older. 2004, following graduation, uh, you were hired as an assistant at LaSalle by Dr. G. What were your responsibilities and what type of mentorship did guys like Coach Seymour and Coach Owens provide you with early in your coaching career? So, it, it was um, – that was – that was probably one of the most impactful experiences that I had in coaching because coach G like he allowed me to touch every aspect of the program, man. And I was so grateful for that. Um, you know, he, you know, and at, I don't, I don't think people appreciate how good of a coach John Giannini is and the job that he did at LaSalle. Right. And I can appreciate it even more now having followed him as the head coach. But Dr. G had a way of doing everything, right, and having his hands in every aspect of the program, from recruiting to player development to to scouts, and and um and he got that mentality because he was a very successful Division three coach where he didn't have, you know, the the staff and the resources, right? Um, so what he allowed me to do was he allowed me initially to just run all of the preseason practices. I was like the I was like an assistant coach, a video coordinator, and like an assistant director of operations all in one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because um, we didn't have we didn't have like a, a large built out staff, and um, and and that was really good for me because I got an opportunity to touch all areas of the program. Um, you know, I was still young, so you know I, I was I was you know the you know I used to make a joke with some of the guys that like, yo man, there's no way you're gonna tell me that that I'm older than you, right? We had a couple of guys that I knew had to be a couple of years older than me when I was an assistant coach. But um, Dr. G gave me full reign. He let me, um, you know, he, he gave me a voice early. Um, he allowed me to teach and coach on the floor. Uh, because of that, I, I earned the respect of the players and developed great relationships with with the guys that, that we coached. And, um, and then, you know, gradually, it wasn't like from the start, but then gradually he gave me some some leeway to get out and do some recruiting as well, and um, and I thought we're able to make a really strong impact in that regard. Um, Coach Owens was one of my mentors, one of my uh, he's my guy, uh, one of one of the best people in the world, um, and you know you know Coach Owens. You know, he's a Philadelphia legend in his own right. And, you know, he sort of kind of gave me the green light to, to 
to, you know, work with the guards. And then, you know, he, he brought me along in the recruiting space where, like, he has so many great relationships with people and he would bring me with him and allow me to build my own relationships. I watch how he interacted with people, the certain way that he had about him. And, you know, like I stole so much of his personality and adopted it as mine um, uh, just because he had an unbelievable way about him with people um, where he's really engaging and he disarms people that, that may have a guard up because he's just, you know, such a, uh, you know, such a happy and pleasant person to be around. Right. So, you know, you know, from, from Pap, I learned a lot. Um, obviously coach Seymour was my college coach. So, um, we had a connection there, but then also we had Harris Adler on our staff and Harris was our director of ops. He had came from being an assistant at the university of Penn and Harris did all the behind the scenes stuff. He was really organized and detailed and, and he, and he, and he really, you know, held the program together in a lot of regards. So as a young guy, it was really cool to have the opportunity to, to, to take the experiences that I learned from Drexel, implement some things at LaSalle, and then utilize, you know, my youth and my energy to, to get out and, and recruit and, and, and bring players to the, to the school. No doubt. After four seasons at LaSalle, you returned to Drexel and you were part of a coaching staff that led the Dragons to consecutive 20-win seasons, including a record 29 wins in 2011-12. Did you reach out to Coach Flint or did he reach out to you when he had an opening on his staff? So, so Jeff Arnold left and went back to St. Joe's. He, you know, Coach Arnold was a, was a, um, great player at St. Joe's. So he had the opportunity to go back and join Coach Martelli's staff. And this is one of the things about Philly, right? Where like it wasn't even like a conversation. <laughs> it was almost like, all right, this job, this spot open, you're coming back to Drexel. And I think Bruin and, and Coach G had a like an understanding that like, all right, yo, these dude is coming back, you know? And I remember going to dinner with, with Brew. And he just pretty much said, look, man, this is what I'm paying you. You start tomorrow. And I was like, Dag, like, I don't, I don't have any say-so in this, <laughs> right? But, uh, you know, Brew is my guy. It was understood that, you know, you know, I, I love Drexel. And, and it was a great opportunity for me to come back. And I went back to Drexel with the mindset that, man, I want to bring a championship back to, to, to my alma mater. And, and Drexel had great success with brew um um and you know the year you know a couple years prior i think it was Bashir's senior year they had like an unbelievable season and and then you know you go through those cycles where it's like okay you have a really a talented group of guys they graduate now you're rebuilding so then when i came back we were sort of kind of in that rebuilding stage um and we had guys like jamie harris gerald coles scott rogers Evan Niesler, um, Kenny Tribbett. So we were building it back up. So it was a great opportunity for me to come in and, you know, work with Tony Childs um, and Mikey C and, and just kind of bring, you know, some new life, some young, fresh energy, a guy that knew, that knew the university, that understood recruiting there, that understood what it was to be a student athlete at Drexel. And, and that was cool. It was like a perfect, it was like a perfect marriage. And, you know, we came back, we were able to bring in some, some talented guys. 
we had a really, really impactful um, player coming in named Sammy Givens that Jeff Arnold had recruited. And, and, and Sammy, you know, for that four years, he was an unbelievable player. And then, you know, we, 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 in addition to Sammy, you know, we had brought in other guys like Chris Fouch, Franz Massonat, and, and Damian Lee, and Daryl McCoy, and Derek Thomas. And, and those guys ended up becoming the nucleus of like a really, really talented and, um, and successful team that coach had at Drexel um, in 2011, 2012. How would your relationship with coach Flint and the other guys change from your days as a student to then being an assistant coach on that staff? So, you know, when I, when I was a student, um, you know, especially going through the transition of, you know, playing and then, being sidelined and coaching, and, you know, that was a, you know, like we talked about, that was a challenging time for me, right? So, you know, it, it you know, and, and a lot of the administrators, you know, they, they still looked at me like, you know, as Ash, the former player, the student assistant or whatever. So one of the things that Brew wanted me to do was he wanted me every day to come to work with an element of professionalism to show them that like, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm a different Ash now, right? I'm, I'm a professional, I'm a coach, um, you know, I'm a leader. Uh, I'm somebody that uh, is, um, is, is taking this opportunity serious and someone that's going somewhere in this business, right? So, you know, that, that was the value of, of having Brew um, as a mentor because you know, like he was, he was on me the same way he was on, on his coaches, right? I mean, on his players. I remember one of our first recruiting trips, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I came to pick him up in my car and I had on jeans and a, and a sweater and I was dressed real casual. He came out of the house, he has his suit on and he looked at me like, yo, man, are you crazy? Like, you can't go into a school and talk to these people dressed like, like you're one of the students. And, um, he took me in his house and, you know, he gave me a suit and a shirt to put on and he pretty much dressed me for, for, uh, for that, for that recruiting trip that we were doing for that day. And that's just the type of person that Brew is, man. Like, like he's loyal to his guys. Um, there's never an opportunity or, um, or a chance to, to help teach and mold and develop that he, that he didn't, um, that he didn't like pour everything that he had into me. And, um, and it was really cool to, to be a part of those teams that had success because Brew was my guy. And I knew that, you know, without him, you know, at that time, I definitely wouldn't have been able to make that transition into coaching. And my friend Katie Roberts was an athletic trainer at Drexel. And she had told me how Coach Flint was visible at all the Drexel sporting events. Was that something he emphasized to the members of the program also? So I think what Brew did was I think Brew really understood the importance of the presence of the head coach and being engaged and, and tying together all of the sports and, and, and making it one big community, um, Drexel Athletics. So, you know, I think the reality is, like, I think he, he – um, he assumed a lot of those responsibilities. Um, 
because he trusted and he knew that, you know, we had all the other stuff covered, the recruiting, the relationships with the players. Um, you know, we, we were on top of all of those things. So it gave Brew an opportunity to, to, to um, do all the things that were necessary for him as the head coach um, and the ambassador of, of, of the athletic department to, um, to really, you know, show his face and, 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 and be present to support all of the other sports. Uh, definitely makes sense. Yeah, after going twenty nine and seven, reaching the quarterfinals of the NIT, you moved on to be an assistant for Chris Mack uh, in two thousand twelve. How did you get? How did you get connected with Coach Mack, and what was the difference in recruiting as well as style of play between the two leagues? So, um, so uh, Coach Book Richardson, who. Um, uh, was uh, an assistant at Xavier under Sean Miller, was one of Coach Sean Miller's assistant coaches at Arizona. At the time, um, he reached out to me because Book was an AAU coach with the New York Gauchos, and we had a couple of his players at Drexel, and we developed a really good relationship. So an op uh, opportunity came about at, at Xavier, and Book reached out, said, yo, Sean needs – uh, an assistant coach and I, and I gave him your name. So like they're, they're, they're probably going to reach out to you. So, um, sorry, Chris, um, he's looking, he's looking for an assistant. He's going to reach out to you. So, um, you know, Chris reached out, told me he wanted me to come out to campus and, and, um, and, and, and meet with him. And, you know, I went out there and, and at the time, you know, uh, you know, I had lost my mother in 2011. So I was in a space in my life where I was just looking for something different. And, you know, I went out to Xavier, in all honesty, with the mindset that, like, I'm leaving Philadelphia. I'll probably never come back. Um, and, you know, I went out there. It was a great experience having a chance to work for Chris. Um, I love Xavier. I love the city of Cincinnati uh, for, the, for the small time that I was there. Um, you know, I, I really, um, you know, enjoyed it. And, uh, so went out and, and then, you know, I got a call, uh, a year later, um, uh, to, to, to look into an opportunity to come back home to Villanova. So. Move back to the city of brotherly love. Like you mentioned, coach of Villanova under hall of fame, coach Jay Wright. What made Villanova so different and operate like a Fortune 500 company? You know, I, I think I think during my time there, you know, everybody just had such great respect and admiration for Coach Wright that whether it was the the players, the managers, the coaches, like nobody wanted to let him down. Um, and we knew that, that he was experienced enough and had, you know, all of the tools to, to be considered a hall of fame coach. Um, so, you know, when I, when I took, when I, when I, when I took the opportunity to come back, you know, I was, you know, I wasn't like a guy that, that played at Villanova or, you know, came up, you know, in the Villanova, program as a, a grad assistant or a video coordinator 
So my first year, I really wanted to go in and just try to learn as much about the culture and about the program as I could. You know, I think, you know, the one thing that, that I brought to the table from day one was just, um, you know, you know, resources and connections and recruiting. Um, so I just tried to do my best to, 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 to prioritize that, like, you know, from the start where, um, you know, other guys like Baker Dunleavy, Kyle Neptune, George Halkovich, those guys had been in the, in the Villanova family in the system. They understood it. And I was learning all of that from them. But, you know, a couple of those guys, they weren't as experienced in the recruiting part. So, like, at the time, Baker was the associate head coach. But we worked so well together because he was teaching me the, the ins and outs of, you know, what it was to be an assistant at Villanova and how coach liked things done. And, you know, you know, and not just from a basketball standpoint, but just how we live and how we function every day. And then I was able to, to, you know, help those guys understand some of the things that we had to do in recruiting in regards to building relationships, um, identifying talent early um, and, and, and staying on it. And, and, and so it was like a perfect, it was like a perfect mesh, um, you know, as, as we transition, you know, Billy Lang was really, really instrumental in, in, in getting me to come to Villanova. Uh, you know, Billy was the one that reached out to me. Um, and Billy transitioned like a couple of months while after I, after I took the Villanova job, Billy left and went to the Sixers. So then it was even more of an opportunity for me to, to just kind of work with Baker and Kyle to, you know, you know, just develop a, a really solid team and develop our own chemistry. Um, and I thought we did an unbelievable job of that. Um, and I think that's what made Villanova great. Like we had a bunch of guys that had different skill sets, but we had no egos, no agendas. Nobody cared about who got credit for anything. We were just committed to working together, developing the players and, and helping to execute everything that Coach Wright wanted. And, um, you know, at the time, I don't think any of us foresaw, like, you know, two national championships and, and all of the success we had. Every day we just knew that, you know, we just wanted to go about our business a certain way, represent Villanova in a certain way, and just be completely invested into the success of the student-athletes that we were dealing with. That definitely paid off. You were a large part of the two national championships during your five years at Villanova. Each season, you guys went to the NCAA tournament, and you won four Big East regular season titles and three Big East tournament championships during your time at Villanova. How did you guys stay hungry and locked in night in and night out with that kind of success? You know, I, I thought Coach did an unbelievable job of getting our guys to adopt the mindset of, like, are we getting better? Right. Like, you know, let, let's be the best version of ourselves. Let's be the best team that we can be by the end of the year. And and let's be committed to that. And then, you know, regardless of the outcome of the season, if we know that, you know, we're, we were the best team that we could have been by the end, you know, we, we there's honor in that. We can look each other in the eye and feel good about where we are. Right. And. You know, I think our first two years, um, that re those two years really kind of set us up 
for that 2016 year because we had a lot of young guys that went through um, the experience of, you know, having a lot of success during the regular season, a lot of success, you know, um, throughout the Big East tournament, winning the Big East tournament, and then having that disappointment of, of losing in the second round. So, you know, you look at Ryan Archdiacono, Daniel Sheffu, Josh Hart, Chris Jenkins, um, Phil Booth, Mikhail, like those guys were a part of the teams that, you know, you know, we 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 lost in the in the second round to UConn, who ultimately ended up winning the national championship, and then to NC State. And and we knew that we didn't play our best, right? And and we sort of understood the adjustments that we needed to make as a team in order to take the next step. And those guys were committed to that. Um, you know, we, you know, we, we, we stayed true to like, yo, let's just, you know, be the best version of ourselves by the end. And, um, and that's what happened in that, in that first year. Um, and that's what happened in 2018 as well. Uh, we, you know, we were playing our best ball during the tournament and and um and and that's really what it was. And even in two thousand seventeen, the following year after we won the first national championship, you know, I thought how our guys handled that year was even more impressive because we had so many things going against us, right? Um, just a late season, all of the fanfare that you have post winning a national championship. Um we added some new pieces to the fold. We had injuries that really um, could have um, like really been detrimental to the team, but we didn't allow it to be. Um, and, you know, we got everybody's best shot, right? We played at Purdue, played a tough Notre Dame team, played UVA. And, I mean, we had some wars. Xavier was a great team that year. Um, we had some battles. Um, Seton Hall was really, really good that year. Um, and, and, and we, you know, we, we were number one pretty much consistently, you know, the entire season. And, and we, we got knocked off by Wisconsin in the, in the second round of that tournament. But, you know, that team, that team had a great run and, and it was all based on like, yo, the mindset of, yo, are we getting better or not? Let's be the best team that we could be by the end of the year. You know, each season you guys finished better than you were picked in the AP poll. I'm curious, at, at, a, at a program like Villanova, do you guys use that as motivation? And how tough is it to block out the noise at that level of a program? I thought we had unbelievably mature players, man. And, and I know as a staff, we didn't really pay much attention to the preseason rankings like, you know, that's all that's like that's somebody's job to create content. Right. And I think in this culture, I think guys do an unbelievable job of creating, you know, content and excitement around college basketball. Right. So um, we never got into that, though. You know, we knew that we had a job to do. We knew that without um, each other, um, that that we couldn't be the best team that, that, that we that we knew that we could be. 
and that was always our goal, man. It wasn't, it wasn't like, okay, let's prove to people that, you know, we're, you know, we, we should be the number one team. Like we had been the number one team in the country in previous years. Like our first year, 2013, 14, we weren't even in the top 25 when we started that season. And we ended up being ranked number one at, at certain points during the year. You know what I mean? So we understood how, you know, um, you know, inconsequential the rankings were, and it was really all about us and our connection and where we getting better or not. Love it. You know, you had a hand in recruiting future NBA draft picks like Mikael Bridges, Jalen Brunson, Dante DiVincenzo. What was your recruiting approach, and, and who were some of the relationships that helped you with signing such heralded and talented recruits? I mean, to be honest, like I, I, I've known like Jalen's dad, Rick, since I was a, since I was a, a, a Temple ball boy as a kid, right? So, you know, when I first got to Villanova, you know, I knew Jalen um, was in Chicago, and you know, he was a big time young player. Um, so I, I just initiated the contact with Rick in regards to Jalen. I thought that it was a great fit just because, you know, coach had always done well with, with big time point guards. I thought Jalen shown at an early age that he was, that he was going to be, you know, the best point guard in, in the country coming out of high school in his class, which he ended up becoming. And, um, and, and then Rick had his own relationships like with, you know, you know, Rick uh, played for Baker Dunleavy's dad, Mike Dunleavy um, in the NBA um, you know, Rick and Coach Wright had a longstanding relationship. So I think, you know, the combination of a lot of those things and and Jalen and um and and Rick and Sandra just being unbelievably solid people um played into, you know, just the whole culture and and um of the type of families that we wanted to be a part of Villanova and 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 obviously Jalen, you know, he did his part, man. He was he was a significant part of the success of the program. Um, you know, um, I mean, just unprecedented what he did um, at Villanova. Um, Mikael Bridges is a funny story. Like I'm, you know, I'm really good friends with guys, a couple of guys that are related to his father, and um, and I, you know, I was recruiting Mikael when I was at when I was at Xavier and, you know, you know, he was going through his process and Villanova was recruiting him as well. And then when I came over from Xavier to Villanova, you know, it was like, okay, Billy was recruiting him. I was recruiting him. Like, so the relationships are really good. And, and then, you know, you know, coach got a chance to evaluate him and, and we thought that he'd be a good long-term fit. And, and we got really lucky with, with him and his development. And, you know, he came from the team final AAU program. I played for Rob Brown um, with the New Jersey All-Stars in AAU when I was in high school. So when I, when I got to Villanova, you know, I, I, was, I was adamant with, with Rob. Like, all right, man, like, <laughs> like, like there's no excuses. Like, I'm at a big-time program, man. We need, we need some dudes. And I always would mess with Rob. Um, because, you know, I wanted Lonnie Walker and Cam, and Cam Reddish. I wanted the five-star dudes. And I would mess with them, like, yo, man, like, all right, we got Mikhail and, and Dante, but, like, yo, what's up with the five-star guys? And then it's crazy how 
you know, it's it's all about getting the right people, right? Because I think Dante and Mikhail, they ended up being just as good as, as anybody that's come out of that team final program. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with their personalities and how they meshed with the Villanova culture, right? Um, just two guys that come from great families that are hardworking, that were unbelievably committed. Like Dante's story was really cool because Dante was on the team final uh, red team, which wasn't the main team. So, like, you know, we knew Dante was a good player, but it was like, all right, how good is he? Like, he's not on the main team. So then, you know, he goes to the main team and he's playing with other really talented guys. And and then we're in a position where we had to to evaluate, you know, you know where he was. But we, we always knew that, that there was something about him that was special. And, um, you know, the fact that we were able to bring in all of those dudes, like in a, like in a one to two year period, I think that really set the tone for just that team, like during, during those times. Right. So, um, you know, the fact that we were able to kind of, um, you know, get involved, build, you know, through the relationships with the AAU coaches and high school coaches and, and personal relationships with family members um, of the recruits. I thought that we, we did a really good job of um, collectively putting that, putting that team together. What was it like coaching Josh Hart named the national player of the year in 2016? Again, you just talked about coaching, you know, a lot of uh, very talented players, you know, he ends up being a first round pick of the LA Lakers in 2016. So, you know, what was it like coaching him? And then how special was it to see him get drafted? So Josh was the type of dude that like, even as a freshman that you knew, like when he stepped on the floor, like, there was there wasn't gonna be anybody tougher than him. And and I thought he took a great deal of pride in that. And, you know, light skinned guys get a bad rap, man. Like, you know, light skinned curly hair, think that, you know, he's like a model or something, but like he's one of the toughest dudes that that I've ever had an opportunity to coach. He was competitive. Um, he defended, he rebounded, you know, he was a fierce competitor. And and I think the, the combination of Josh and Arch being that way really, really kind of set the tone for our team. Chris Jenkins was that way, just tough, um, fierce, competitive guys that were skilled and and were intelligent players, right? Um, so, you know, it was really cool to coach Josh. Um, he was, you know, when you, you know, you, you go and you can play anywhere against anybody and you knew that Josh Hart was going to bring it. So when, when you have a guy that you know, is setting the tone that way. You always feel good that that you can win ball games. During your time at Villanova, they won ninety two percent of their games. At any point, did the staff ever just like to one another away from the players talk about how insane it was to go two hundred ninety four and twenty four in five years, or was that really just a standard and anything less wasn't accepted? Honestly. I think we were still not happy. <laughs> I think we were still, we were like in the moment, we were still, you know, trying to, trying to get the respect. Like, you know, we didn't feel like we had the respect of, of a Duke in the Kentucky and North Carolina, like Kansas. Like, I know I felt that way. I felt like, man, like, like people don't look at us like a blue blood, you know, whatever we have to do to get on that level, 
like until we're on that level, we, we haven't gotten this program to where it belongs, you know, like that was the mindset. Right. And I think our players had that mindset too, where they knew that they were just as good as anybody in the country. Um, and we were, we were, we were as good as anybody in the country during, during that time. And, um, you know, as a staff, you know, we were so driven to, you know, sustain where we were that it honestly wasn't until I left and I was the head coach at LaSalle that I really could take a step back and appreciate like, wow, man, like what an unbelievable run. You know, I remember in 2016, after we won the national championship, there was a another college coach that was on, uh, you know, first taker, one of those ESPN talk shows. And he, you know, we didn't have anybody get drafted on our team um, in 2016 after we won the national championship. And one of the coaches said that he wouldn't be able to live with himself if he won a national championship and none of his players got drafted. And, um, and, and then you fast forward and you look at that 2016 team, Ryan Archidiakono, Daniel Sheffu, Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, Mikael Bridges, Dante DiVincenzo, Eric Pascal were two guys who were redshirting that year. All of those guys played in the NBA. So I think it was a combination of like, all right, like we're a really good team, but we had the, the, the persona of like, yeah, they're a good team, but they don't have pros. And then it was like, all right, well, you know, they're a good team, but they don't have one and dones. And, you know, we thought Omar and then Omari Spellman, like our last year, essentially was a one and done player, right? So um, it was cool to be able to be at Villanova during a time where, you know, a lot of people were looking for reasons of why Villanova isn't as good as some other programs. And then we just consistently um, just kept doing what we do, not necessarily focusing on it, but sort of kind of in the process checking off certain boxes of what makes Villanova and what makes coach Wright and what he did at Villanova, such a, a special, special thing. You know, fresh off that 2018 national championship, your name, the head coach at LaSalle, how tough is it for you? And I'm assuming you have an agent to stay focused at the task at hand while you're being courted for other head coaching opportunities. So, I mean, my agent, my agent really didn't, wasn't really involved with, with helping me find any opportunities. Like at that point, um, you know, it, you know, you're, you're the associate head coach at, at number one team in the country, won a national championship. Like, I, I think I was just sort of kind of one of those guys that was in the mix within our industry as a guy that's primed to be a head coach. Right. And, um, and, you know, I, I had no idea the LaSalle job was opening up. I was actually interviewing with another with another school, and I was, like, really close to accepting a position at another school. And then LaSalle opened, and I had a relationship with someone who was in LaSalle's administration. And, um, you know, based on conversations that I had, uh, with this individual, once the job opened up, I felt confident that LaSalle was going to be a place that I could go and and turn the program around. Um, and 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 so you know it was it was an unbelievable opportunity. I was I was close to home. I didn't have to move. 
you know what I mean? I got a, you know, I got a raise and, um, and it was in a, it was in a footprint that I was really comfortable in and uh, a place that I had worked at before. So um, it was at the time, it was, it was an opportunity that was too, that was too good to, to pass up in, in my, in my opinion. I don't blame you. You hired Kenny Johnson, who at one point was the highest paid assistant coach in the country and made more than most head coaches did in the nation. When did you get to know Coach Johnson, and how did you approach filling your first coaching staff? You know, at the time, I knew that I wanted to have somebody. I knew I understood how challenging of a job LaSalle was, right? Um, and I also knew how hard of a recruiting sell LaSalle was. So I wanted to bring in somebody else that on a recruiting level had as much experience and um, connections as I did. And, you know, it was a unique time because, you know, things had, um, you know, went sideways with Kenny in Louisville. And I had a great relationship with Kenny because we grew up in the business at the same time. So like, you know, we worked group group camp together. Um, he was an AAU coach with, with uh, Maryland triple threat at the time. And they emerged into team takeovers, probably, you know, the best, you know, one of, one of, one of the most prominent um, AAU clubs in the country. Um, got great relationships with, 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 with all of those guys in that organization. Kenny was in a position where, you know, I thought he got a raw deal. I know Kenny, know he's a good dude, very smart guy. Um, and, you know, and I believe that Kenny really didn't have any involvement with, um, you know, you know, all of the stuff that was going on. And I spoke to our AD about it, um, Bill Bradshaw. He was supportive. He did his research. You know, everything came back that Kenny wasn't involved um, in, in, in any of the FBI stuff that was going on allegedly during that time. And so, you know, I felt confident in, in, uh, in, in bringing Kenny on board. And Kenny was really, really good. Um, it, you know, it was a challenge, you know, you know, forget like how much money Kenny was being paid because he loves basketball. He loves helping young people. And he did the job for free at one point in time. You know what I mean? And one of the things that people don't know about Kenny, like unbelievably intelligent guy. So he could do so many other things other than basketball. So it wasn't like, you know, like he needed the money um, or the, or the money was never like Kenny's like real motivation in coaching. Like he loved working with kids. So, and I knew that about him. So, you know, we, we brought him on board and, and then, you know, you know, I, I, I kept um, Donnie Carr, who was a great, uh, great player at LaSalle, a Philadelphia legend, um, you know, who, who, who did a, who did a great job for us at LaSalle. Um, you know, Donnie and I go way back. Like I played against him in high school. Uh, he's a guy that I watched growing up. So, you know, to have Donnie, who was already on the staff, um, already in place, and who understood the university and, and have relationships with the players there, like I just thought that was a good fit at the time. And then, you know, I wanted to bring back a guy that played for me, um, somebody that understood, you know, my journey, somebody that was like a young up-and-coming coach that that understood Philadelphia, that that could touch different areas, and I hired Kyle Griffin who um, I recruited when I was an assistant at LaSalle. 
and um, Kyle's a talented um, coach um, who um, was at Robert Morris at the time with Coach Andy Toole. Um, and I have a great deal of respect for Coach Toole, and he worked at Lehigh uh, for Brett Reed. So he had some some really quality experience that I thought he would be um, a great guy to bring in, um, you know, an opportunity for him to recruit and coach at a, at a, at a level higher than where he was. Um, and, and, and that's, and that was my mindset, you know, when I was putting the staff together, um, you know, to, 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 to bring in guys that had quality, you know, recruiting experience, um, guys that understood LaSalle and the challenges, uh, that LaSalle had and then bringing in somebody that was young, that had fresh energy that, you know, had some experience, but could use the opportunity to, to, to coach at a higher level. Uh, makes sense. Yeah, the team started 0-10 during your first year, but then you guys went about 500 the rest of the season. How did you handle that personally, you know, as a, a first-time head coach? And after losing only 24 games the previous five years, did you ever doubt yourself early on? Um, no, nah, I didn't doubt myself. I mean, one of the reasons why we 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 start off 0-10 was you know, one of our one of our best players was academically ineligible um, for the first semester. Um, so that's one of those things where you take over a program and like now you're just kind of cleaning things up. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, one of the guys that ended up being a starter for us and probably our most versatile player at the time, Ted Saul Fury, um, was academically ineligible for the first, you know, 10 games. So then once we got through that, that period and we added Saul, it's like our team just kind of came together, like all the pieces fit. Like I felt like we had a group of guys where the pieces didn't fit early. You know, we had a lot of small guards. We had really young, inexperienced, big guys. And and we were playing and losing. And we're, we're out of those 10 games, like we played some games where I thought we played really, really well, right? Um, you know, we just lost because we just didn't have the experience and we and we didn't have the makeup of a winning team yet, right? And then we, you know, we got opportunity to play in a tournament. We played Alabama A&M. We got a win. Then we played a really tough uh, Towson team. And that game was like a – that game was a bloodbath. And we ended up escaping with a win in that game. And those were the two games that we played prior to starting A-10 play. So, I think, you know, that, that really helped give us some confidence as we went into conference play. Um, the roster was starting to come into shape. Young guys got experience. All the things that we were talking about early in the year, even when we were losing, remember again, are we getting better? Let's be the best team that we can be by the end, right? So the first 10 games, all right, that's all a part of the process. Let's play our best basketball at the end of the year. And I thought that's what we did. And I was really pleased with how we ended the season. And, um, and I was pleased with, with the direction that the program was going at that point. And I was reading back in 2018, stadium ranked LaSalle tied for 13th in the A-10. As far as, you know, the job itself, how tough was it to get in recruiting battles with other schools in the conference? And like you said, every school has its struggles, but how much emphasis did you guys put on player development as opposed to going out and trying to get four-star type talent? Well, I, I think, the, the reality was like, that was all we preached about player development, player development, player development, get guys better. 
the thing that was challenging at LaSalle and and when you start talking about player development, it's not about just um, you know, getting guys in the gym and getting them better. It's like the balance of, you know, the academic schedule, facilities, you know, so like we had a lot of things that we needed to work through, getting our guys unlimited access to the gym, um, uh, you know, having all of the resources and everything in place so that we could develop the players, um, you know, the coaching staff, um, learning, you know, our system and how we want to do things. So it takes a lot of time to turn a program around, especially a program that, you know, wasn't in a position where it was thriving when you, when you take it over, right? So, you know, we had a lot of cleaning up to do, and I thought we did a really good job of, setting the tone and, 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 and having a certain standard that we wanted. Um, you know, the recruiting part is so important because, you know, you know, the challenge is, you know, when you bring kids to campus and you don't have all the bells and whistles and all the resources and the facilities, your, your counterparts in recruiting crush you because of that. Right. So what we did was we just recruited based on relationships and, I'm going to tell you, man, like a lot of the players that we that we were able to bring to camp, like they committed without even coming to campus, without seeing campus. Um, and we we really um, utilize relationships um, to 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 really bolster our recruiting. And, you know, I thought that, you know, we were in a really good place in terms of, you know, where our roster was. You know, we lost a we lost some guys in recruiting, but I'm sorry, we lost some guys to the transfer portal. But that's normal, right? I just think, you know, at, at, at the time, I don't think um, people really understood how normal it was, especially at a place at LaSalle where, you know, you're, you're not established yet. The resources aren't exactly where you need them to be yet. Um, but I still thought we had enough talent. Um, it was just a matter of getting all of the pieces that you have to fit. Right. And I think that 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 takes time. Um, but then the pandemic hit. Right. And I thought that we were in a really, really good spot. And then you get hit with the pandemic after year two. And then now, like, you're hitting the reset button because we missed an entire offseason of development um, for all of our players. Right. So you had guys that that like like Scott Spencer and Dave Beatty who were trending upward you have the pandemic and now those guys have six months where we can't touch them. Our strength coaches can't touch them. And then we bring these guys back from uh, a six month hiatus in September. And now like you're trying to prepare these guys for a basketball season. And at the time I didn't realize the significance of it or the impact of it. But now that I have a time to, to, to take a step back, you know, as a coach, I, I probably would have done a lot of things differently. Um, uh, but but in that but in that moment, you're just you know you're you're just hypersensitive to everything. You don't want to push the guys too hard because you're just coming back. You're still in the middle of a pandemic, so you want to isolate them. So now you're thinking about mental health and all these different variables. And really, basketball is probably the least important thing in my mind during that time. Um, just because in the end, like you're dealing with young people and, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, um, make sure that their safety is first. And, and um, 
And I thought that that really compromised the player development part for us, which was obviously, like you just said, was was so significant to to our program at that stage when we were building. Now, you did get three wins over teams that won 20 or more games, uh, you know, Murray State, Wright State, South Alabama. Talk about, you know, how much confidence that did give your team uh, being able to, you know, win that Gulf Coast showcase. Oh, that was honestly, that was probably one of the highlights of my my career at at LaSalle Um, going into that deal like Murray State, Wright State, South Alabama, three big time mid-major programs. And and, you know, we had lost two Philadelphia Big Five games um, versus Temple and Penn earlier in that year. And then we were going into this tournament and 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 I had to make a commitment to just playing our older guys and 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 bringing our younger guys along. Right. I had two young point guards at the time and I was starting one of them and, you know, he just wasn't ready. Right. So I went with a more older core group in that in that tournament and and those guys played well together. The You know, I, I remember. You know, th- those were three completely different games, three extremely competitive games. The South Alabama game was like a back and forth overtime game. We had a 15 point lead blew. It was down 12. It was like crazy. Um, it was a it was a it was an unbelievably fun game. Coach Riley down in South Alabama is a big time coach. Um, and uh, and and it was a great experience, man. Um, our guys were excited. It gave us the confidence that we needed to really go into the remainder of that season feeling like, you know what, like, you know, we're, we could be competitive in the Atlantic 10. And, um, and, 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 and I felt like we were, felt like we were. You know, I saw you coach your team at Davidson. They had just been announced as being ranked 25th in the country. And you, you guys gave them a run for their money. What made Davidson so tough to beat under Bob McKillop during your time in the A-10? were just tough and disciplined and and you know you think Davidson you think oh they're a soft you know um execution team and Davidson were they're tough and nasty and physical and disciplined and 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 they and they really believe in coach McKillop's system and they play that way and um like every time we play Davidson I would just be in all of how um, how hard they play, how deliberate and crisp they run their their their, their stuff, and um, and then how physical and, and and tough his teams were. And you know, there's there's a reason why he he's one of the one of the great coaches in, in college basketball. And you know, I was really fortunate to have an opportunity to compete against them and and to learn from them um, as a young coach in the business. You guys won four of your last five games at LaSalle, including winning a, a tournament game. Were you surprised when the school didn't retain you, especially because you had restructured your contract in order to help during the COVID pandemic? And like you said, not being able to develop players because of that uh, pandemic? You know what? I was surprised when it initially happened. But then when I, when I took a step back, I wasn't really, um, you know, when – you know, most times when you when you have a change of administration, new athletic director, new president, um, 
you know, you know, things are going in a different direction, right? And you know, the uh, the the regime that that hired me, um, they were no longer there. The people that were, you know, um, that were there that 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 I'm that I sat down with and 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 um, built a pack with to to build LaSalle, they were no longer there. And at that point, we hadn't turned the corner yet, right? So. Um, after the fact, it made sense. Beforehand, I, I didn't see it coming because I knew that I at least had, you know, a couple years on my contract. And and I just thought that, you know, they understood that this wasn't, you know, a quick turnaround, especially coming off of the pandemic. Um, so I would have liked to have, have had another year. Uh, I, I really believe that had they given me another year, our team would would have been really competitive this year. Um, I think we would have been able to, you know, you know, you know, ma- maintain um, some of the important pieces on the roster that, that left. And then, you know, I, I was always, you know, thinking ahead and recruiting. And I think we would have been able to bring in a couple of other guys that would have been able to, to, to take the program to another level. But, you know, honestly, if there's any person that I know um, is passionate about LaSalle and can help that program is Fran Dunphy, right? So when they made the decision to hire Coach Dunph, I mean, it's like, you know, you know, what can I say to that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he's a he's a Philadelphia legend. He's a LaSalle legend. Um, he's one of the greatest people in the world. And he's somebody that understands LaSalle, understands the situation that they're in right now, and who's in a position that I think can can help the school and help the program moving forward. Coach Howard, what do you learn about yourself as a head coach? And is there anything you would have done differently with hindsight being 2020? Um, yeah, there, there's so many things that, that you, that you learn from as a, as a head coach, you got to get, you have to get the experience, right. Um, and that's why I'm so grateful to LaSalle for giving me that experience to, to lead a program and go through, the trials and tribulations of running your own program, especially during a challenging time like COVID. It's all about, you know, you know, making, you know, critical decisions that you think in the moment are in the best interest of not just yourself, but like, you know, everybody, the entire group, right? So, um, you know, one of the things that I probably would have done um, is, you know, I think I underestimated the importance of having like a, like an older, um, head coach um and not and doesn't necessarily have to be older but just somebody that had been a head coach before um that that understood you know how how to make certain critical decisions right um um you know early on um in my career I thought I thought that would have been beneficial um you know during my last year I was able to bring in coach Pat Chambers who uh who um was a former Villanova assistant head coach at Penn State, current head coach at Florida Gulf Coast. And and having Pat on staff, it really helped me because, you know, he like, you know, he was a guy that I could really bounce certain things off of. And he was a guy because of our Villanova background, we spoke the same language. We looked at the game the same. So he was somebody that that I knew understood um some of the things um that we needed to do and, and, and where we were trying to go as a program. So, um, you know, all the other things, man, I think, 
you know, the decisions and some of the things that I can look back and say they were mistakes. I think they're all things that you chalk it up to just, you know, um, being a, a young head coach, learning um, and, 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 uh, and, and figuring out your own style. Um, but, but I do know that for my experience at LaSalle, I'm a way better coach. And, you know, the next opportunity that comes, you know, I'll be far more prepared, um, whether it's assistant or head coach, um, to, to be in a position to, to add value um, just based on, you know, my time at LaSalle. No doubt. What are some goals you have for the 22-23 season? And are there any things you're consciously trying to add to your bag? So, you know, honestly, one of my goals is I want to get out and I want to watch as much ball as possible, watch other coaches, see how they do things, see how they run their program, see how they run their practices. I think that's so important for coaches to just get out and see other people. And I've been trying to take advantage of that during, during this time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a project with Villanova right now. Randy Foy and I are spearheading the Friends of Nova Collective for um, NIL for, for the student athletes. So, you know, that's a really cool opportunity for me to engage in the name, image, and likeness space, learn the ins and outs of it, and, you know, put myself in a position where, you know, I can help coach Neptune and, and the Villanova um, athletic, um, you, know, you know, programs from afar in this position, uh, you know, because Villanova has given so much to me um, as a coach the opportunity to coach there during unprecedented times has been a significant part of my development. So during this time off, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not far from campus. So to be able to, to work in that space and to help, you know, um, get this initiative off the ground is a really cool project. Um, so, you know, diving into that space, learning as much as I can from other coaches and watching and growing but the most important thing for me is just spending time with my family, man. Um, I have two young kids, um, you know, a, 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 a awesome wife who has really been supportive of me um, throughout this, throughout this journey. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I didn't just dive right back into coaching this year was because I looked at it like, you know what, man, I have an opportunity to spend time with my family, to be present with my kids and knowing that, you know, when I get back into coaching, I may not have that opportunity again. Like uh, that—that's what's most important. And and now that I'm in this position, like I'm so grateful that I have this opportunity to spend time with my family, to be present. Um, uh, because you know, you, you you never know what you miss until until you're present. And um and I and I and I am very grateful for the opportunity to to, to be around my family. Oh, you're so right. Do you feel the stereotype of being labeled a recruiter is still a thing? And if so, how do we evolve as a basketball society? Uh, I mean, I think the game is changing. You know what I mean? I think there's so many other variables that, that go into it. Um, you know, I think it's unfair when people get labeled as just recruiters because a lot of times, you know, you, you only can do – what you're allowed to do right and if certain coaches are put into a box where this is all that's being required of them or asked of them then you never know how good of a coach somebody really is you know what I mean um and recruiting 
is the lifeblood of, 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 of college athletics, right? You know, you know, without, without great players to put on the floor, you know, it's hard to, to win games, right? So it's so important, right? So I do believe that recruiting is underrated. Like, I think if people look at you as like a, as a great recruiter, that's a great thing. Because if you're a great recruiter and you're bringing in good players, that's why the program is successful. You know, you know, the X's and O's, the, the, the coaching is like you, you, you realize, and I've realized like, you know, you, you could be, you know, at school A or school B, the place that has the better players is probably going to be more successful. Right. And, you know, it's, it's harder to, to coach, um, uh, you know, a team with talent, but it's also hard to coach a team that has talent and to get everybody to mesh and gel. And that's one of the things that I think make coaches like John Calipari and Coach K and Bill Self and Coach Wright and like some of the great college coaches. I think that's what makes those guys really unique because they can, you know, take the talent and in a short, quick period of time, get guys to gel. So you have different, you know, ways of doing it, but without the great players, like these, you know, these teams, you know, aren't aren't successful, and I think that's why, you know, in, in this new landscape with the NIL and transfer portal, um, it makes makes things really different. Um, but uh, you know, in the end, like you know, people that have the ability to cultivate relationships and 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 get um, students to come to their schools, it's it's valuable. It's so valuable. Stuff. Hey, coach, come to the segment I call start bench cut. I give you three things. You start one, bench one, and cut one. Yep. Uh, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour. Well, you're starting Nike. Um, wow. So I, I, I'm a bench, I'm a bench Under Armour and, and cut Adidas. And and the, and the main reason I think you can go either way with Under Armour or Adidas, I I, I got great relationships with the Under Armour guys. They they've always been good to me, right? Uh, so just just my personal preference: Nike, Adidas, uh, Nike, Under Armour, Adidas. Okay. Philly basketball players: Barkley, Iverson, Dr. J. Oh, man. Like, come on, man! Like that, like that, that that might be one of the hardest start bench cuts you, you you'd ever experience. So, I got to start Dr. J because I think you know Dr. J won the, won the NBA title. I think Dr. J revolutionized the game in so many ways. Um, and then I think you bench AI. AI was revolutionary in his own way. He was a trendsetter. Like I think Dr. J and AI were 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 trendsetters and guys that revolutionized the game in two different ways. Um, so you know I'm gonna start Doc, bench AI, and and then I, I got to and it's crazy. Out of those three, Charles was probably my favorite player growing up as a Sixer. So I got but I got to cut Charles. Oh, that's that hurts. Fa- that's fair. <laughs> Eagles, Sixers, Phillies. Oh man, so I mean, come on, man! Like they're all the same to me. They're all Philly, man. I'm a Philly. I'm a diehard Philly guy. 
through and through. I I I I I would rather I would rather say you know you know I cut the Giants, the Cowboys, and the Redskins before I cut <laughs> any of those. You know what I mean? Um, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. I could. I couldn't. I, I don't. I don't have any to cut any any Philly school, any Philly sports team, man. We're diehard, man. I, uh, that's that's just me. I, I bleed Philadelphia, so I can't do it. I, you know, I I I'd start all three of them. I I know there's too many cheesesteak joints to uh, choose from, but I'll say this: Wiz with and without. I like Wiz. So Wiz would start. Wiz with Wiz Wiz with Wiz with. Okay. Okay. Last one. Hoop dirt, verbal commits, transfer portal. You said hoop dirt, verbal commits, transfer portal. Yep. Oh man, I think verbal commits is number one. Uh, transfer portal number two. Hoop dirt. Number three for me. Okay. Coach, who are three guests I should have on the podcast? What three guests should you have? Yep. Um, I think you should have um if you could, man. I I, I love Dennis Gates, man, who who who's the head coach, the new head coach at Missouri. I mean, what what he did at Cleveland State was just amazing. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He's somebody that, that I, um, that I've, that I've admired in coaching. And, um, I just think he's a, he's a, I, I think, I think he's a star in our business. Um, uh, another, another person is, is Joe Gallo at Merrimack. Um, like he, he's a big time, um, zone defensive coach, um, you know, at Merrimack, you know, like up here in the East coast, everybody knows how good Joe is. Um, he's somebody that, that I've admired from afar for a long time. I think he, he'd be great. And, um, and then, um, you know, I, I think my, my boy Dwayne Killings at Albany is a, is another guy that, that you will want to get on this show. Dwayne is, is, is an unbelievable, um, coach, uh, leader, and and I think he has a very very promising vision for Albany basketball. Um, like he he does a he does an unbelievable job. Um, I'm a big fan of Kim English down at down at um, down at George Mason. Um, Kim uh, is he's a he's a star in the business as well. And then we got you know then then obviously if you can get my my guy Kyle Neptune on here, I would I would I would love for you to 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 connect with Coach Nep. Um, uh, you know, Villanova basketball is in great hands with him. Um, he understands the, the the culture that's been created. He understands the the landscape and recruiting, and he's a really really good coach as he showed at, at Fordham last season. So, um, you know, I think those those guys are, are people that I would encourage you to to have on the show. Coach Neptune's college roommate still has his number. There might be a chance. <laughs> <laughs> coach what advice would you give coaches either trying to work their way up the ladder or who might be looking at uh you know making that jump from assistant to head coach you, you know the, the, not to take yourself too serious man i mean 
you know, you got, I think you have to respect the game. I think you have to respect the profession, um, you know, understand and, you know, and don't be um, unwilling to learn new things. It's something that I've learned, um, you know, be, be open to, to, to trying new ideas and learning different things, um, you know, get out and, and, and watch other coaches because um, there's so many different ways to do it. And, and um, you know, there's so many really talented coaches, man. I don't care if you're a JUCO coach, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three. There's so many great basketball minds and, and people that look at the game differently and are really, really, like, talented in how they – they they think of the game and how they teach the game and 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 I and I just I just think that's so important like don't limit yourself get out learn um um you know you know get to know all of the the coaches in in your in your department build relationships with those coaches um you know they're still coaches they you'll you'll be surprised at how many um similar challenges you have to the track and field coach to the field hockey coach to the softball coach to the volleyball coach right like like get get to know all the other coaches in your department and and get to know the administrators as well build relationships with them um stay connected with them and um so now you can become uh more well-rounded in learning and understanding the different nuances of of the department, even if you're not in a position where, you know, you're actually, you know, fulfilling certain duties and obligations um, based on your position on the coaching staff. I love it. Coach, if listeners want to get in touch with you, email, social media, what have you, what's the best way to reach out? I'm on uh, Coach Ash 5 on Instagram and um, and Coach Ash Howard um, on, uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Coach, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I had told you off air, you know, really respect uh, the job you've done as a coach. And uh, I think whoever hires you next is going to hit a home run with the hire. Dave, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for having me. No doubt. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate five stars.